poor Joseph. If ever there was a man who needed Christ Jesus to come to him, sweet Jesus to come to him, it was, it was Joseph. Uh, God's tough on the Josephs of the Bible, isn't he? It's, that's one of the names that you don't want to be caught with. You think about the, the, Joseph, the husband of Mary, and uh, the difficult news that uh, your wife is pregnant or you're, you're betrothed. Uh, she's She's pregnant, and then the challenge of parenting the Son of God, that's not, a, that's not an easy one, is it? And then we get this, this poor Joseph, a prisoner for a crime he hadn't committed. He, he spends the best years, some of the best years of his life, locked away in a prison cell. And yet God is with him. His jailers recognize that here's a man with some pretty unique gifts, administrative gifts, they put him in charge of different facets of prison life. Eventually, Joseph gains the reputation as, a, as an interpreter of dreams. And he's provided the opportunity to interpret one of the Pharaoh's dreams. So impressive is this event that Pharaoh, he exclaims to his court, Who in all of the land of Egypt is like this man? In whom, in whom can be found the spirit of the gods? Pharaoh promotes Joseph to a high-level position in the Egyptian government. There he spearheads the, this natural disaster relief effort as he, he's in charge of the famine relief, stockpiles large stores of grain, and through it he ends up saving thousands of people from death and starvation. Which leads us into chapter 42. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? Why are you sitting here? Behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there, that we may live and not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, because... With his brothers, four, he feared that he might, that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was governor, prime minister of, over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and they bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them, saying, Where do you come from? They said, From the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. So there they are, bowing their faces to the ground, and just as it was said to him in the dream. And Joseph spoke you are spies you have come to see the nakedness of the land they said to him no my lord your servants have come to buy food we are all sons of one man we are honest men your servants have never been spies the sermon title this morning is the tests well, what i want to show you are the four tests that joseph puts his brothers through over Effectively, the next four chapters of the passage. I'm going to go through these pretty rapidly. Four tests in order to determine, have these guys really changed? 
are they the bloodthirsty rogues that they were 20 years ago, or have they, have they really changed? The last time they saw Joseph, he was, he was a teenager. And of course, they don't recognize him here as he's dressed up as an Egyptian and all of his Egyptian regalia. They don't recognize him, but he recognizes them. And he says to them, you are spies. You have come to spy out the land and see the weaknesses of our defenses and see how we can be conquered. And we come, first of all, to the spy test. (laughs) And they reply, no, my Lord, we are all brothers of one elderly father back in Canaan who is is there being taken care of by, by an 11th son. Joseph replies, prove it. If you are honest men, prove that what you tell me is true. Bring that younger brother here. Until you do, I am going to hold one of you hostage until you bring that that younger brother here. So we start out with the spy test, or you might call it the Simeon test, because the brother they hold as hostage, or Joseph holds as hostage, is the brother Simeon. So what, what is that? What's going on here? Why? What is Joseph trying to, to determine? What's this? 20 years prior, they sacrificed one of their brothers for the sake of the rest. Will they do that again? Simeon is a hostage. Will they? The easiest thing for them to do is sort of turn and head to the north and, and never look back. Will they sacrifice their brother again? The spy test. Secondly, so the brothers come down to Egypt and they're carrying a large amount of money in order to buy the necessary grain to supply their their needs. And what Joseph does is he commands his servants to take that money that they paid and to hide it in the grain bags in order that when they return back up to Canaan, they're going to discover, oh, what happened here? We have money, uh, bags of silver. It's the silver test. See, what is he trying to get at in in the silver test? Well, 20 years ago, they sold their brother into slavery for for a bag of silver. How much does silver matter to you now? The uh, couple years go by, the, the food runs out, these men are desperate again, and they return back to the land of Egypt, this time bringing back with them the silver and bringing with them Benjamin. Now, Benjamin is the, is the blood brother of Joseph. Remember that, uh, that there were only two sons of the favored wife, Rachel, Benjamin and Joseph. You have, to, you have to think that during those years, as Joseph wasted away in prison, he wondered what prompted all of this. Was it, could it have been that they were, they were really jealous of my mother, the favored wife? Is Benjamin still alive, my, my blood brother? Or was their jealousy so great that it was directed against our mother and they've cut him off too? Well, they, they bring back Benjamin. The brothers arrive into the city and they are immediately invited into a feast and they walk into the banqueting hall and the the name tags or the, the placards for, for the seating arrangements, every one of their names are set in front of the plates 
And each of them are, are set in order from youngest to oldest. Which had to be very spooky. <laughs> How in the world do the Egyptians know our names and our birth orders? And lo and behold, if Benjamin, the youngest son, isn't made the guest of honor. When the food is delivered, what happens? Benjamin's plate is loaded with five times as much as all of the rest. We come to the Benjamin test. Will they despise the youngest son of Rachel again? Then finally, Joseph sends the brothers home again. With the, they're, they're headed up there with plenty of grain, but he instructs his servants to hide his royal silver cup in one of the bags of grain. Just so happens to be hidden in, to, in the bag of Benjamin. So the brothers, they're headed to the north, and the Egyptian posse, sirens blaring, they track him, track him down, and say, "You've stolen the, ro- the royal cup." And they're like, "No, we have. We've done no such thing. Look in our bags." Ah, Benjamin has. And so you come to the, the, the test of the, of the silver cup. And it's the question. Um, they, they take Benjamin back to the, town, uh, to the city. They put him in chains. Will they sacrifice him too? They wouldn't sacrifice Simeon, but Simeon was one of their own. Would they sacrifice the youngest son of Rachel, the blood brother of Joseph? Would they sacrifice him too? So what is the point of these four tests? I mean, I purposely broke it up in this way to try and condense four chapters of Bible into four easily uh, memorable things. What is the purpose of the, of the four tests? Maybe you've heard this expression used before. Change hasn't taken place until change has taken place. <laughs> That's sort of right out of the Yogi Berra school of wisdom. Change hasn't... Yeah, I have come across this many times in the counseling room. You're having a session with somebody, and they say, I'm a, I'm a new person. I'm, I've changed. I'm, I'm, I'm totally different. Hey, look, friend, talk is cheap. Change, when you're, when you're talking about changing from deeply ingrained habitual sins, change has to be proven has to be demonstrated, has to be tested. You can say that you're a different person, but, but we're not going to take your word for it. It has to be proven. Um, it takes 20 years for the change to finally take place in these guys' lives. You say 20 times 365. That is 7,300 days for finally the transformation of their hearts to finally have taken place. And I guess the miracle of the story is it does. As some of the, the worst characters in all of the Bible find that their hearts can be softened and, and made new again. My son, my daughter, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when you are reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises every son whom he receives. Where does that, where does that come from in the Bible? Is that the book of Genesis? <laughs> that, no, that's the book of Hebrews, chapter 12. Uh, the, 
in this story, it never tells us explicitly what changes their hearts. What was it that God was doing in their lives in order to bring about such a massive transformation in their hearts? Was it that the daily agony of watching the sorrow and grief of their father Jacob as he, as he as he lamented the death of his son? Was it the pangs of conscience that were constantly uh, stabbing them in the heart? What was it? We don't know other than to say that God's hand was heavy on them. He was pressing them. He was disciplining them. And that is, that's how he deals with people that he loves. The author of Hebrews goes on. It is for discipline that you have that you have to endure. For God is treating you as sons and daughters. What, what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are without discipline, then you are nothing more than an illegitimate child, not sons, not daughters. No. We have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for that. Shall we not much more be subject to our spiritual father? For our earthly fathers disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But our heavenly father disciplines us for our good, that we might share in his holiness. Yes, at the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later on, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been, to those who have been trained by it. And then Revelation chapter 3, verse 19. Those whom I love, says the Lord, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. It's very interesting because you read through Hebrews and the author never tells us exactly what God was doing in the lives of those Christians to, to discipline them. Only the fact that was that he was. And it begs the question for us, uh, Lord, are you doing, are you doing that in, in my life? How do you know if the, the, the heaviness of your life is actually the discipline of the Lord? I mean, it's not like you have God standing there beside you, paddle in hand, is explaining to you why it is that you're experiencing this. How do you, how do you know? I think I, I asked myself that question this week. Um, oftentimes, I, you don't know. But sometimes you do. You just do. Here's an anecdote from, from a pastor I respect. He writes, uh, I, I had a friend once who had firmly and finally decided not to become a minister, even though he, he sensed that he ought to, but instead to become an accountant. And then almost at once, he was struck down by a strange ailment that forced him to stay in bed for a week, by the end of which not only his mind, but his heart and the direction of his life had been changed. Now, was that, was that God's discipline? I know another friend who, after doing something entirely stupid, which something he knew to be entirely wrong, uh, immediately afterward, he was faced the next day with a, a short-term disaster, which so exactly mirrored what he had just done that he, he felt like it was undeniable that this was the, the chastening of God. Sometimes you don't know, and sometimes 
You do. God has his ways of alerting his children to the fact that they should either pause and think this over again, or they should turn around and go in the opposite direction, or they should get down on their knees and repent. Some people may be shocked to think that there is a God up there who's so involved in the the comparative trivia of our lives. All I can say is that I'd rather be in the hands of of a loving but disciplining father than I would be in the hands of a distant and faceless bureaucrat. I just wonder, have you ever, do you ever feel that? Have you ever felt like he was uh, disciplining you? In the case of Joseph and his brothers, you get the sense that these four tests that we have are not merely diagnostic. The purpose of them is not simply to find out, have these brothers changed? But it's actually, the tests are intended to promote the change. Joseph, he, uh, he harshly interrogates them. He puts them through this long and, and hard regiment. And I can just imagine, all the while, these brothers were thinking, this is not fair. I can't believe this is happening to me. This is terrible. And all the while, um, well, that's how, it, that's how it usually feels. You think about our own parenting. Even when you institute the most perfect discipline for your kids, they always believe that it's, it's not fair, and it's too hard, and goes on for too long, and it's too painful. And then they tell you that, and you begin to doubt yourself. Like, am I really doing the right thing here? You, you really, I'm a fallible parent. I'm, I'm not sure. Then the strangest thing happens. You you become, I don't know, you get into your 30s or your 40s, and all of a sudden you wake up and you wish that your fathers would have disciplined you more, not less. Isn't that true? You look, you look at who you become, and you really do wish, in most instances, that your father would have uh, disciplined that laziness out of you, that lazy streak, or that lustful streak. Or that propensity to take the easy way out. Dad, I wish you would have pushed me harder. Uh, it's a strange thing to say. Dad, I wish, I wish that you would have hurt me more. That's what A.W. Tozer once said. He said that it is doubtful that God can bless a man greatly unless he hurt him deeply. Uh, that's that's the problem with fathers, isn't it? That our fathers hurt us deeply. And that's the blessing of fathers. <laughs> fathers hurt us deeply. They bring just enough unpleasantness and discomfort into our lives to, to keep us from, to help us to escape that which we once were. That's what, that is what you're trying to do as a parent, is you are trying to, to help... Uh, Break the shackles. You don't, you want your child to, to no longer be confined to the realm of a liar and a cheat and a selfish little brat. And, and a good father knows that the right amount of pain and discomfort in a controlled environment is the tool for, for that to take place. 
I look at this passage and I notice that Joseph, the easiest thing Joseph could have done was what? He could have said, uh, I am Joseph. Hello, brothers. I forgive you. Let, let's let bygones be bygones. But instead he disciplines them, which is very different than punishing them. I, I want to make that, I want to make that note. Punishment. What is punishment? Punishment is when the judge sentences the man to be hung from the gallows. When, when you execute the criminal, you're not trying to make him a better person. <laughs> you know, punishment is giving somebody justice. This is what they deserve. Quid pro quo, tit for tat. This is what punishment is punitive. Discipline is is corrective. It's discomfort that is wisely administered and a good father knows how to bring just the right amount of it. And not a tad too more. If it's too harsh of, just, of, of discipline, then the child is going to become embittered. If it's too little, then the child is going to blow it off. But a skillful father knows. And I have, I, I'm certain that some of you here today are under the discipline of your heavenly father. You are. I don't quote from the Westminster Confession of Faith very often, which is our doctrinal standards here at All Saints, but in Westminster Confession chapter 11, which is the section on justification, uh, it says that, it says this, justified Christians, what real Christians, while they can never ever lose their salvation, can, by their sins, come under God's fatherly displeasure and lose a sense of God's kind presence with them until they humble themselves and are truly sorry for their sins and really do change and repent. It, it happens. I mean, the great news is that some things will not change. Your sonship, your daughtership, his fatherhood, that doesn't change. But the bad news is that your communion with God does change and your sense of his, his pleasure does change. Your, uh, your experience of his blessings, your circumstantial happiness, your health, your prospects. Uh, the, so how do you know? How do you know if you are experiencing the discipline of God in your life? Well, if you're not sure, it never hurts to ask. You ask him. Heavenly Father, is this your chastening hand? Because if it is your chastening hand, I don't want to make the mistake of resenting it. I don't want to be a, a sulking and petulant child who resists it. I refuse to believe that the things that are happening to me right now are happening uh, as a result of vindictiveness on your part. But I, I want to realize, I want to un- embrace this pain as your tool to produce in me holiness. Um, one of the, the great preachers of the last century, kind of the, one of the more famous of them, John Stott, who was the pastor of All Souls and uh, was, it, was it London? And Stott, Stott was brilliant. He died in 2011. I was, reading one of, I was reading the manuscript of the last sermon that he ever preached in 2007 this week because it's, it's always good to read the words of a brilliant man, to, 
you always pay attention to a special man's last words. And here's what he said. He said, the, the question that perplexed me as a younger Christian and perplexed some of my friends as well was, was simply this. What is God's purpose for his people? Granted that you were saved and you've been converted and granted that, that you've received new life in Christ, what is next? We, were, we, we grew up in the church. We, we knew the famous catechism question, what is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. We knew that. We believed it. We also toyed with other slogans like, love God and love your neighbor. But, but we found somehow neither of these nor many other slogans seemed entirely satisfactory. And here I've come to the very end of my life and I, I approach the end of my pilgrimage on earth, and I, I've come to see it's this. God's, God wants his people to become like Christ. Uh, Christ-likeness, Christ-resemblingness. Christ-likeness is the will of God for the, for the people of God. And that, and that was the, the topic of his entire final sermon, God's purpose in your life. You were predestined before the foundations of the world, before there was ever a universe created. God said, I predestined you before the foundations of the world to be conformed to the image of my son. That, that's what he wants. Uh, and so, if, if that's the case, uh, when you're reading through the New Testament and you come to Paul's letters, you know how in Paul's letters he will have interspersed throughout his so-called sin lists, sin list, where, you know, he says, this is wrong, this is wrong, and this is wrong. Well, here's one of his sin lists. He says, put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, idolatry. Rid yourselves of anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language from your lips. If, um, if that is still in you, <laughs> uh, then that's, that's what he wants to purge. Because he wants to make you look like Jesus Christ. And so I, what I would say to you this morning, I'd say, uh, if God's hand is heavy on you, then don't refuse it. Don't resist it. Don't resent it. Don't minimize it. Don't despair underneath it, but embrace it. The way that the, the old writers talked about it is, is to kiss the rod and to bless the hand that wields it. Because the most amazing thing in all of the universe is that those who embrace it, you discover it actually works. It works. The last point. The, the most poignant uh, speech in the entire section of Genesis right here. Judah. Judah, who is the most wicked of all the brothers. Judah, who it was originally his idea to sell Joseph into slavery. Judah was the one who was out looking for the prostitute who ended up committing incest with Tamar. Judah, you know, the, most, the worst of the whole bunch at the end of the Benjamin test walks up to Joseph and takes a deep breath and says, make me your slave. 
I can't imagine going home to my father without the boy with me. My life for his life. Make me your slave. Judah, of all people, becomes the perfect uh, emblem of Christ. It's Christ-likeness. He, Judah becomes a substitutionary sacrifice for his brother. This is the same man who sacrificed his brother 20 years later. And Judah, of all people, has been disciplined by God and becomes like Christ. I know it wasn't fun for him. I know the road had to have been immensely, immensely painful. Discipline never seems pleasant at the time, says the author of Hebrews. But later on, however, it produced a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have trained by it. The purpose of all of God's disciplining activity in your life is to make you like Christ. And God promises that he who began that good work in you, painful though it may be, will carry that on to completion until the second advent until the return of Jesus Christ. Amen.